What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Not long now until we have Gabina Markanova doing her maiden obedience tour of New South Wales. Very excited to have her in mid-February. And on top of that, we have Chad Macken and Jay Jack doing their Dog Training Conversations Tour of Australia. That's going to be in uh, Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne the first three weekends in May. You can jump on my website, mskennels.com, to buy tickets to that. So two very good seminars coming up. We're looking forward to seeing that. Cue the music. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today in the studio, we have Narelle Cook. Hi, guys. Very excited to be here. Thank you for coming to this studio in your own home, but making the time to talk to us. It's a very different experience sitting here behind the microphone as opposed to cleaning around it. (laughs) It's a little bit intimidating having a microphone pushed into your mouth, isn't it? It is. Oh, goodness. Oh, jeez. We could have made a Randy joke about that, but maybe we won't. We'll leave that one. Okay. So, Narelle, Glenn's wife, you are here today to talk to us a little bit about nutrition, specifically canine nutrition. Tell us why we should listen to you about that. Well, to start with, I'm a clinical naturopath and nutritionist, and I'm also registered with an industry association. And I wanted to mention that because it's really important people be aware that the term or the title, naturopath or nutritionist, is not protected in Australia. Aha, uh-huh. so I am also a naturopath. That's correct. You could very well <laughs> go out there and proclaim your naturopathic and nutritional abilities and sell your services as yeah, one. Right. So people really need to do their due diligence when they're seeking advice from people, whether it's online or in person. Because the consequences could be serious if you're getting bad advice. Yeah. Yeah, Um, but we share that frustration too because we're subject to that as dog trainers. Yeah, exactly. We have exactly the same issue where uh, anybody can call themselves a dog trainer and often do. I mean, there are very unscrupulous people in this industry who uh, charge outrageous amounts of money Mm. and have nothing as far as they don't even have any qualification whatsoever. Their claim to fame in many situations is that they've watched a box series on TV mm. or, or on their computer. It's a tricky one. It's across many industries. And like I have to admit, I don't have any recognized qualifications as a dog trainer in Australia, but here I am calling myself one. And um, oh, So you're one of them. I am one of them. <laughs> I'm exactly one of them. <laughs> so I've, just, I've just named and shamed. Yeah, you've, you've just, come you've out just outed me. <laughs> um, but it was the same when I was a stonemason as well. You can, there's, it's a trade and you can, it's a, you know, registered trade to get do your three year four year apprenticeship, but you also don't need that. Anyone can call themselves one. So it's not mm. you're not alone as a naturopath. So I'm now a stonemason naturopath dog trainer. <laughs> but so you're training to get to there because you have done the training and mm-hmm. that's why you bring it up and you're saying you're part of that what do you say? It's a, a registered Industry Association. Industry Association. So professional so I can't join that as a naturopath? No. Right, okay. So you don't have the, you know, you can't have the professional insurances and that protection that comes with professional association okay. membership. All right, so, well, so I'll probably stick to training dogs then instead. And also it's important because as a, a member of an association, I have to practice according to their code of conduct. 
right. as well. So there's this protection for the client. It's an assurance well. for the client in that way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what training did you undergo to to get to that point? A lot. Well, let's let's go back <laughs> a, a step. You haven't always done that, right? So, what did you used to do before you came into this field? My first degree was actually a Bachelor of Agricultural Science, which is not something that you sort of grow up thinking. You know, I want to study agricultural science. Originally, I wanted to do veterinary science. Tell people why you, that you couldn't do become a vet. Two reasons why I didn't do veterinary. <laughs> I feel like science. there's a story coming. <laughs> there is. One reason is the one Glenn's alluding to and one's the one that I like, actually like to share. The first reason is when I did work experience as a teenager in a veterinary clinic, the first operation I watched, I fell face first into the floor. <laughs> so that wasn't a good start to a potential career. She, she didn't fall, she passed out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm picturing it. Yeah, I think everyone gets the point. But the second reason, and the one I think is more valid, is that I got offered a scholarship to go to Melbourne Uni to study agricultural science. Nice. And I thought, hey, if someone's going to pay me to go to uni, you know, I'll make it work. Mm-hmm. So being a more research-focused institution, I just majored in, you know, within the agricultural de- degree, I majored in genetics, microbiology, and pathology. Right. So that was great. You know, it still took me in a direction that I was interested in. Mm-hmm. So from there... I worked as a research scientist for many years looking at diseases of the foods that we eat, so fruits and vegetables primarily. Mm-hmm. So you mean diseases the fruits and vegetables can get? Yes. Yeah. Um, Not they can give us, but that they can get themselves. That's correct. Right. So, you know, when you see apples with black spots or mm-hmm. leafy greens with white spots, minimising that is, and minimising it so also farmers don't need to spray the crops yeah, as sure. often with chemicals as well. So mm-hmm. there was a few angles that we were looking at there. But then I got to my mid to late 20s. And so in the background of all of that, I had two Dobermans and I was passionate about them and passionate about training them. And I thought, wouldn't it be awesome if I could do this as a full-time job? Like if this could be my career. So I went and I studied the NDTF course back in 2003. And, and then- And there was this stunning man instructing on that course, right? With these flowing locks that we've seen from back in the day in, in photos. And that's a whole nother story, right? Yeah, that's a whole nother story. Yeah. <laughs> but that's where you guys met, right? When you did that NDTF course? Uh, no, she came to train a dog with me. Oh, right. Prior, okay. So prior to her doing the NDTF course, she was driving past on the road one day, saw our sign up on the road and came to train a dog. So, yeah, I was actually a client of Glenn's. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And then I went on to be an instructor for his obedience group. And then I also had my own business running for a couple of years as a professional dog trainer. And I did have that qualification mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, behind me. Um, <laughs> so I'm the only one in the room and pretending. Yep. And then I did some instructing for Australian dog training with Boyd Hooper as well. So that was a couple of years. And then oh, it just wasn't, I wasn't loving it. You know, when your hobby becomes yep. your work and it's not what you thought it would be and and I missed the science, so I ended up going back and getting a job as um, with a global pharmaceutical and agrochemical company as a regulatory affairs associate. Mm-hmm. So basically, getting chemicals registered for use in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, similar but different to what I was doing previously. And I love that. You know, I love the work, and it was challenging work. But when there's just something that doesn't sit well with your core values, that's how I felt about. Right. The work because again in my personal life I was I've always been very interested in health. Mm-hmm. So then from there unexpectedly and I think Glenn spoke about it in his 
his own podcast, he got offered the job in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And at the time I thought it was just terrible news, but in hindsight, it's been the best thing ever because when we moved to Sydney, I naturally applied and got a job in a, with another pharmaceutical company. And, and then I said to Glenn, can I go back to school and study to be a naturopath? And because of the amazing husband that he is, <laughs> he said, yes. I don't think he realized what he was getting himself in for when he said yes, because six years later. Six years. Yeah. Well, it's, it was six years because initially she did advanced diplomas, three of them. And then after that, she came to me and said, and I'm thinking after this, this is great. Like she's done it. She's got all the certificates. Um, you know, she's done all the, she's maintained the qualification that she said after. And then she comes to me and goes, so about this course, I'm now being told that the industry is looking to upgrade our industry as a minimum standard of bachelor's. Was it, am I correct or am I butchering this? No, you're, you're pretty spot on. And it's not yet, but. There's but it's a, coming. Yeah, there's a lot of talk that to be to practice as a naturopath in the future, the minimum standards and requirements will be a bachelor's degree. So interesting thing on that is that anybody who is involved in a partnership, husband and wife, partnership, whatever you are, if you're with somebody who's studying, you're going through it with them. Mm. So, you know, you've probably done it with Jane with her tattoos and she's probably done it with you with all your army work and yeah, everything. Yeah, well, I understand what you mean, that when you go, you lose an income for, for starters. It's not only that, but you're also watching your partner studying day in, day out, mm. you know, all the work that they're putting into it. And I used to watch Narelle. She was literally chained to her desk mm-hmm. on a daily basis, just researching and studying. And she's studying things at a GP level. So effectively, she could have been a GP. She spent the same amount of time studying that a GP would actually do. So mm-hmm. she's she's done that, but she chose to do it on the topic that she's more interested in, which is the natural health side. So, I mean, I'm happy about that. A lot of, I know a lot of people poo-poo the natural medicine world and carry on like pork chops over it. But um, Well, I think as we're about to discuss, it, it really is food is medicine and that's really the starting point, right? Absolutely. And I've seen the benefits for myself. Like when you personally experience them in your own self, then mm-hmm. you understand that not everything can be achieved by standing in front of somebody with a white cloak on. And, and I'm not digging at doctors or anything like that because modern there's medicine. A, there's a place for both. There is a place yep. for both, absolutely. And we regularly participate in both. We're not people who poo-poo the scientific side of it, but obviously there's nonsense on both sides. And that's probably important for people to come to realise. Mm. So just to clarify, so I did the three advanced diplomas, but one was in naturopathy, one was in nutrition, one was in Western herbal medicine, mm-hmm. and the bachelor was a bachelor of health science, naturopathy. So I currently work three days a week in my private practice in Dural, mm-hmm. and I work three days a week as a research officer for a health company, just doing all their research and technical writing. So I love it. I love I love the balance. I love what I do. I'm busy, like crazy busy. Awesome. It's great. So just an interesting story. I know I've told you this before, Pat, but when Narelle actually got her bachelor's, she you get a choice whether you get the certificate mailed out to you or you go in and do the presentation at the stadium. So Narelle spoke to me about it and said, what do you think? She said, it'd be nice to go in. I said, yeah, I agree. I think go hire the gown. Get to dress up like a wizard for a day. Get to dress up like Harry Potter. Absolutely. And we can go to Hogwarts and um, (laughs) (laughs) and get your your certificate. Do it properly. So uh, Narelle was quite excited to do that because she was joining a lot of her classmates and, you know, it's nice to be recognised for the the three or four years of work that you've actually put in, Mm. hard work. So we went along and did it. It was actually, there's a lot of people there. It was actually very, very packed arena. 
much more people than I thought there would be there. And they did a really good job of it. It was a, a very formal event. I'm sitting there and Narelle and all her team go up and get all their certificates. And there's a whole heap of people that from different fields in business, marketing, IT, that were all getting their bachelors or their cert fours, et cetera, et cetera. And at one stage I said to Narelle, because her marks were fantastic through the year, like she got high distinctions right throughout. She always applies herself very thoroughly to her study. And I thought, um, I thought you know, she may have got honours, but it didn't appear that she actually did because it didn't say it on her certificate when they, mm-hmm. they gave it to her. So at the end of the ceremony, they were talking about the honour awards, like, you know, people who had specialised in their field. And there was a whole row of these people sitting up on stage all wearing uh, gold sashes on their... They were special wizards. They were special wizards mm-hmm. with special wands. So I was uh, I was looking at them and I'm thinking, oh, these must be the people. I'm thinking, oh, that's disappointing. Rel's missed out and she's applied herself really well and got all these super high scores. Like I know that she'd done very well compared to some of her classmates because they'd shared stories about how difficult it was and how hard they found it. And, I, and I gave up my motorbike from those good results too. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Yeah, she did. She stopped riding and pretty much poured her whole life into her study. So we're sitting there and we're, I'm listening to this lady and, this, and she starts to discuss how she's had this wonderful student who applied herself so well and her grades were remarkable and her quest for knowledge was just phenomenal. And, and you're uh, thinking, oh, who's this asshole? Uh, well, I am. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm looking at the people sitting up on stage. I'm thinking, oh, which one of these people got this? You know, like she's rabbiting on and on and on and on about it. And she went for about 10 minutes doing the intro and I'm thinking, geez, this person's really getting a great big fanfare. She gets to the end of it and she said, I'd like to call to stage Narelle Cook. And I'm scrambling for my phone and the guy sitting next to me is going, oh, do you know that person? I said, yeah, that's my wife. He goes, oh, man, you must be proud. And I said, <laughs> well, I am, but I also feel like an idiot because I'd recorded none of it. Oh, dear. So uh, I missed the whole, hopefully, maybe they've even recorded it. I think they recorded on the day. Don't actually know, but, but that's, um, that's fine. It was remarkable what she actually said. Like she really wrapped Narelle up and, and Narelle was as, as surprised as what I was because she was loaded into a corner over the other side of the stadium. Mm-hmm. Like she had to trip over all her classmates to get through the aisle to actually walk up and receive the recognition. So what was the actual recognition that you got? So I was awarded for achieving the highest grades in New South Wales for a Bachelor of Health Science. So that cool. Was, yeah, that was pretty amazing. So it's nice to have the hard work recognised in that way. All of that has brought us around to the fact that you know what you're talking about, right? Uh, 10 years really of study, all of it based around food from growing food and how that's done, the treatment of that through to its effect on the body. That's right. So you, you would like to think that I know. So you do know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I've got the paper to prove it. So we've got a, a dog trainer that it teaches dog training and we've got the naturopath that has done 10 years of study and, and top of the marks and there's just some other John and me sitting here knows nothing. Without sounding biased because we're husband and wife, Narelle is... Uh, so you are biased, 100%. I am, uh, Narelle, look, to be honest, Narelle is my greatest critic in life. <laughs> so we're pretty hard on each other with that type of thing. But she is a very applied person in anything she does, even with her clients that she sees now. Like she gets fantastic results. When other people have given up and not been able to achieve things, when people have come to see Narelle, they've said to me, she's just amazing. Like mm-hmm. what she's helped me with has just been phenomenal. As Narelle points out to people, you've got to do the work. 
Yeah. You know, if I'm telling you what you've got to do, you've got to actually put in the effort to do it or nothing will change. Mm-hmm. And it's like anything else. I know a lot of people are just saying, I want to reach for the pill and have that solve the problem for me. But that's not going to fix the problem. And Narelle is often frustrated by that because people that do apply themselves to the knowledge and information she gives them, they immediately start seeing results. Yeah. Well, yeah. not immediately, but... And it's hard because it's it's human nature to want to take the easier path mm-hmm. for the most part. You know, having the knowledge, you know, most people know what to do to be healthy and to eat well, but actually doing it's the challenge. And that's where I come in to support people um, in that regard and be their number one sort of fan in cheering them on and doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Certainly there's a lot of people that it is difficult, but, you know, we bounce back and forth all the time. I'm always trying stupid diets out and actually today is first day off of 100% meat. I ate half an av- a quarter of an avocado for the, the first green thing I've eaten in a month. Um, but it's fun to bounce back and you, you advise me against <laughs> against it. I did. Um, I was very curious and, you know, rap, you were prepared to experiment on yourself that way. But from a nutritionist perspective, I couldn't not advise against Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah. I enjoy exactly that. I like playing with my own body and just not playing with my own body. Oh, my oh well, God, that as God. well. But it's, you know, it's seen the effects of food. It, it, and leaning into <laughs> what we're going to talk about is the effects of food on your body is 100%. Everything that you do is controlled really by the fuel you're putting into the vehicle, right? And mm. I like to play with that and muck around and see what works for me and some things work for a while and then they don't. And under your guidance and, well, your concern, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to play with. So, People should get in contact with you for their own health and nutrition ideas. If you need guidance in that space, your clinic's out here three days a week. But, but what be we're prepared to, to work. Yeah, be prepared to, and maybe give up chocolate, you know, whatever it is that, that's causing the problem. But we're here to talk about dogs. That's right. And the reason I'm so excited to be talking to you and your listeners today is because, you know, my whole life I've been focused on human nutrition. Mm-hmm. Love it, you know, passionate about it. And surprisingly... For all of that time, and I've had dogs my whole life, and Glenn and I are like the Brady Bunch with dogs since we've been together, it never occurred to me to think about what I was feeding my dog. Mm-hmm. Go figure. And a lot of people are same. They're in that exact same category where they'll look extensively into their own diets and conveniently feed their dog shit. Yeah, it's like we have a completely different mindset in terms of nutrition when it comes to ourselves versus our pets. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't make sense. The more I look into it and the more I think about it, it's just crazy. And there's actually a cartoon that you might be able to pop up on the the Facebook Facebook page. And what it's describing in the top panel, you've got Mrs. Jones holding her baby in her arms and she's with the doctor and the doctor's telling Mrs. Jones, you know, feed your baby this scientifically formulated packet food for every meal for the rest of its life. And Mrs. Jones is like, is he crazy? There's no way I'm not going to feed my child a variety of fresh foods. And off she goes. Then in the next panel, Mrs. Jones is at the vet with her puppy. And the vet's saying the same thing. You know, Mrs. Jones, feed your dog this scientifically formulated packet food for every meal for the rest of its life. And Mrs. Jones is like, wow, you know, isn't science amazing? How How convenient. How convenient. And off she goes with a smile on her face. Mm. Crazy. And I think that's a category most or close to everyone sort of falls into, right? It's not something we think about a whole lot. It's certainly a niche thing that people are doing is feeding anything other than just kibble straight out of the bag. But it certainly is, it's not that crazy. It's something that we should all be looking at doing. And you're going to tell us a bit more about that. Absolutely. And, you know, we see it in humans and we're quite accepting of it in humans, but in dogs as well, they're experiencing more ill health, you know, higher rates of cancer, 
obesity and you know disease in general as their diets have become more processed yeah. over time. And reduction in life stages as well. Like there's significant reduction in the age of a dog now where you used to see dogs living to 16, you're lucky to see them living to eight now. I actually read somewhere too, and I can't support this now with any evidence, but... Um, That's right, we don't need it. <laughs> that dogs, that wolves in the wild, you know, if they're not killed by, you know, any other mean, if they can live to old age, you know, they can potentially live into their early 20s. Yeah. Mm. The um, oldest dog um, is actually a dog that was in Australia and uh, only, I think it only recently died. Yeah. Uh, lived into its 30s. Yeah. Yeah, but Rodney Habib and it's like Rodney a red Habib. Kelpie, right? Yeah, it's red mm. Kelpie. Yeah, Rodney Habib and Karen Becker have got quite a few YouTube clips where they talk about the age of dogs, what they should be living to, and what they're actually being stunted to in regards to either nutrition or over vaccinating or whatever it is. I'm not claiming that that's the case because mm. I, I don't 100 percent know, but I'm just information that I'm reading and hearing is correlating to these may be the reasons. And it's never one thing. It's never one thing. It's a combination of things, I believe. Here's something slightly off topic, but terrifying. Did you know that I heard that crocodiles don't die of any natural cause other than starvation, that they just grow and grow and grow until they get so big that there isn't enough food to sustain themselves and then they die. Isn't that terrifying? That's fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why the the, the biggest ones are in captivity because they just get fed and fed and fed. Right. Isn't that terrifying? But that they just keep living. Yeah. So they don't really, there isn't like, you know, crocodile will live till this long. If unmolested, like he, he could get killed by something or catch a disease or something like that, but they don't get old. They just get massive and can no longer eat enough. So it just reminds you just, talking about age. If you kept feeding a crocodile, there's no end of life cycle. Not that for we're aware of. We haven't been able to study it long enough that one's died. Okay. That is fascinating. And I might have just terrifying. made that whole thing up, but no, I heard it somewhere, so don't quote me. Well, but if there's anybody, any zoologist out there who can disprove Pat's outrageous claim, it is outrageous. But it I is outrageous it. that crocodiles can just live forever and just yeah. I think I heard it from like hunters and Nathan, rivers and dams, and I think I heard it from like Nathan Greentree, a hunter. Anyway, that's an interesting fact that is perhaps not not true. Do you want to know an interesting, irrelevant fact that yes. every river and dam that we ever pass on a way to somewhere, I make sure Narelle looks in there for, for crocodiles. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He makes me look, and he says, "Are there any crocodiles?" Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a, it's just our thing. It's a thing. Um, okay. okay, let's move on. Yeah. So, given my interest in nutrition, and given this realization that maybe I should care about what I'm feeding my dogs. Mm-hmm. You know, it was only six months ago because I didn't really have time. I felt before that with all the study, I started to research the impact of nutrition on canine health. Mm -hmm. And particularly, I was interested in the pros and cons of raw feeding. And the more I researched it, you know, the more I was struck by how easily things could go wrong and how owners could so easily set their dogs up for some pretty serious, like long-term health consequences. If they were raw feeding poorly. If they were raw feeding poorly. Right. Yep. And just because nutritional deficiencies aren't obvious in your pet immediately doesn't mean they don't exist because most deficiencies from a poorly fed any diet can take months or years and generally do to manifest. So what's an example of that? It's something like I've just done exactly. If you just fed your dog muscle meat and nothing else, eventually you're going to run into some problems there, right? Absolutely. So, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, probably the example of muscle meat is deficient in quite a number of micronutrients, mm-hmm. vitamins and minerals and fatty acids. So, yeah, setting your dog up for a lot of physiological and mental and behavioural negative consequences. Mm. Yeah. And not probably not to mention dental as well. That's right. Mm. Yeah. 
So there's actually a surprising lack of high quality independent clinical trials that actually look at the effect of different feeding regimes on canine health and behaviour. There's a lot of low quality trials and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, but you know nothing to the standard that you'd expect in this day and age. Why is that, do you think? Any idea? No one's motivated to do it, maybe? Well, studies have been done, but a lot of the studies are done by the pet food industry themselves. Yeah. So very biased information. And a lot of the education of vets is done by pet food industry. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, over the last however many decades, that's been the focus, that push for those highly processed dry food diets has been the focus. And look, I don't know why there isn't more high quality nutritional studies in dogs, Mm -hmm. but... Wherever there's money, there's opportunity and... And look, perhaps it's like natural medicine. I mean, the reason there's a lack of evidence in some areas of natural medicine and a lack of evidence doesn't indicate negative evidence, Yeah. just that more research needs to be done, is because you can't patent most natural compounds. So there's no incentive at all for big pharma to spend millions of dollars researching something that they can't gain yeah. advantage. However, you from. certainly can monetize sick dogs or deficient dogs. You can put out supplements and complete diets, I'm doing the air quotes, that you can sell to people and have them just feed their dog all day, every day. That's right. So one of the biggest studies that was done on domestic pets to date, and I think it's the largest because it can't be repeated this day and age because of ethical considerations, Mm -hmm. was done by a a human medical doctor back in the 1930s, um, and his name was Dr. Pottinger. Mm -hmm. And he actually was studying the use of adrenal extracts as a health treatment for humans but he was testing them on cats. And at some point in his experimentation, the restaurant that he was getting the food scraps from to feed the cats closed down and he was forced to get all their food from the local abattoir and naturally it was all raw. Mm -hmm. So he thought nothing of it, but then over time he started to notice that the overall health of his cats was significantly improved. Yeah, right. And then there was less surgical mortalities. So that triggered in him, you know, why don't I do a trial? So he got 900 cats. And Where did he get 900 cats from? <laughs> I don't have that don't information. Don't answer that question. Even if you know, there'll be people complaining. Yeah. Which is why this trial can't be repeated. And half the cats he fed a raw food diet, 100%. The other half he fed 100% cooked food diet. And the outcome of his study is just fascinating. So the cats that were fed the raw food diet, he studied them over nine generations. So he gave it a decent yeah, right. go. You know, by the ninth generation, they were healthy, good litter sizes, absence of disease, mm-hmm. fertile, happy cats. Mm-hmm. By the second generation in the cooked food cat group, there was already a noticeable reduction in litter size. There was increased uh, mortality in the litters. By the third and fourth generation, there were increased disease states, lung abscesses, increased parasitism, increased death from diarrhea, and this went on. And then by the ninth generation in the cooked food cats, they were completely infertile. Really? So So that's where the study ended. Because <laughs> <laughs> there were no more cats. He couldn't go any longer. <laughs> he's, he's looking around going, I had 900 cats. Now I've got like two. Yeah. It's and interesting they won't breed. Though, it's very interesting though. I, I sort of talked to people about uh, those studies from back in the day, like sort of pre-50s or 50s and backwards, sometimes hold up so well because the studies were brutal and there's not like there was using any survey data. They'd mm. push they'd push their subjects to death. Well, there was no red tape. Yeah. So Nobody could, cared. There was no ethical standards committee mm. to come in. I mean, so I'm not saying it's bad that we have ethical standards committee by no means, but 
the data that those guys got in those sorts of things were, you know, it's hard fought and it's worth paying attention to because it ain't changing. I, I bring that up with people, you know, we did that episode on definitions and Pavlov and his dogs and people get this pretty notion of the him ringing the bell and the dogs are in a kennel running like and then he, he sweeps the saliva up off the floor like, no, those dogs are in boxes with their lips probably cut off and, and tubes attached to their saliva glands. Like those dogs. Yeah, I don't think anything that he or many of the behaviourists back then were doing was highly ethical. No, but... Uh, I so, wasn't there, I can't say. Yeah, yeah, I've got, but I've seen the drawings. Ben, and, and I've seen some videos too, and yeah. especially on some of the orphan children he worked on. So Yeah, so that data is hard fought. Some, mm. some animals and people and have been through hell to get us that. You've got to pay attention to it, right, or else it's in vain, I think. Anyway, it's something I bring up pretty regularly no. with people. And it's interesting. So once he got those results of infertility after the ninth generation, he thought, well, what if I feed these cooked food cats raw food Will it reverse the damage? And he found that it did to an extent up until the third generation of cats, but beyond that, the symptoms, you know, the damage... It's too far gone. Irreversible. So it just highlights the importance of diet, not just on our own bodies and our own health and that of our dogs, but on subsequent generations. So this comes into an epigenetic argument, doesn't it? Absolutely. My understanding of genetics, and I might be butchering this conversation myself... Well, we have someone that studied genetics in the room, so... Well, we... (laughs) 20 years ago. (laughs) But you still know more about genetics than I do. But my understanding of genetics, what I've researched and what I've read myself is that epigenetics are actually like switching mechanisms on your genes and the way that you stress about things, the foods that you eat, the chemicals that you come into contact with, basically anything to do with how you feel and the environment that you're affected by will start switching things in and out of your gene sequences. So it starts to mutate your gene effectively. Am I on the right path? You're on the right path. The food we eat and our environment and our stresses, like you said, can switch genes on and off. Yep. Which is amazing. You know, it's within our power mm. to control our health in that way. Some things are reversible, some things aren't. Yeah. So you could have, you could effectively start life off with no cancer in your family but because of the impact you've had on your environment, all of a sudden you can start switching these on in your genes. And then when you mix that with the genes of a partner and start having offspring to it, all of a sudden where there was no cancer in the family, suddenly there is, or it might not be cancer, it might be some other form of autoimmune issue, but suddenly out of nowhere you've got children with issues that are passing it on to their family and so on and so on down and, the line. Yeah, and mm. that's because of your ill health at the time of like conception of that child, right? Well, because of what you've done. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting area of science and it, it just highlights, again, you know, the importance of what we put into our bodies and our, what we eat. It can have such serious so, and long-term consequences. So that was evidence in cats in the 30s, did you say? That's right. Right. So this is not new. This has been around a long time. Yeah, and I'll talk more about the pros and cons, more of kibble versus raw food in a minute. But there are more studies that demonstrate the benefits of raw over kibble. And and this is not me advocating that everyone should suddenly change to a raw food diet. Yeah. The last thing I want to do. What I want to people to get out of this podcast is balanced information mm-hmm. so they can make an informed choice that suits them, their circumstances and their dog. Yeah, you're going to explain to us that there there is health benefits and if you can achieve them, then good, but it's not the end of the world if you don't. And I might just be a little bit biased to the raw food. Right. <laughs> and um, But that's recent, right? You said you've only been doing this for like six months. Yeah, six months and not even full on, you know, just 
dabbling, but with the intent to get right into it and to be pretty expert the, at it. One of the things that Narelle and I were talking about this morning was since we've shifted Opie onto a mixture of raw diet feeding, mm-hmm. he is, so Opie is, Opie is my little Frenchie. French bulldog. Yeah. So, or Eggy, as most people know him. Mm-hmm. But we were only talking about it this morning. What I said to Narelle, have you noticed his energy and his play drive have significantly increased? And she said, yeah, she said, I was only thinking about that the other day. He used to just, you know, he's only young. He's only uh, less than two or something, I think, or around mm-hmm. about that age. But he'd run out of energy quickly and he'd sort of peter off and at night he'd be he'd sleep all through the night. Mm-hmm. Now, like, it can be 11 o'clock at night and he's thinking, damn, I want to play. It's party time. It's or party time. Or 5 o'clock in the morning. Or 5 o'clock in the morning. So instead of like... So there are benefits to kibble, at least. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we have noticed a significant change since we started swapping his food out. Yeah, right. So he seems... His coat has a better luster to it. He looks happier. There seems to be a change in his behaviour simply based on the diet and the food that he's eating. Right. So change in behavior. Then there, there was a study that we were talking about recently, another one that I think I, I tagged in a thing on Facebook and we were talking about exactly that. So a recent modern study on raw feeding. That's right. It's a, a recent study that looked at homocysteine levels in dogs. Most naturopaths are all over homocysteine. It's something that we usually like to get tested. It's a marker of inflammation and chronic disease in the body. So humans and dogs particularly related to liver and cardiovascular diseases. And there's also evidence starting to emerge that homocysteine levels and obesity are strongly correlated. Right. Is that that acronym we were talking about the other day, MTHFR? or um, MTHFR and homocysteine are interrelated, absolutely. Yep. Yep. So I usually, if I can't measure, so MTHFR is... Methylation? Methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase is what the acronym stands for. And oh, it's my just, God. Hmm. It's a gene and it's part of a methylation and folate cycle and, you know, it's a whole podcast. But <laughs> this, It is, gen- yeah, absolutely. Right. But I, as naturopaths, you know, it has a big impact on mental health as well. So anxiety and depressive states, you can do a lot around that. So the way we're boiling down to is homocysteine yeah. is a pretty good all-round general marker of health. That's right. So what this study looked at, they had four groups of dogs and it ran for six months. And so one group was already being fed raw food. So they're on their normal diet for three months and then for the next three months they continued on 100% raw food. Mm -hmm. Second group were a group that were already eating dry food and they continued on dry food for the second part Mm -hmm. of the study as well. Then they had a group that was being fed raw food but for the second three months got switched to dry and then a dry group that got switched to raw. Okay, so there were control groups and then Two other poor groups got got to mix it up. That's right. So what was really interesting from the study results was the raw, raw group had the lowest homocysteine by far. Mm-hmm. The dry, dry group had 10 times higher levels of homocysteine, which is... 10, t- 10 times? Yep. Wow. The raw group that went on to dry food had a five times higher increase in homocysteine levels. Mm-hmm. And the dry group that switched to raw had a significant reduction in homocysteine levels. And one of the researchers who was involved in the study, he didn't have, had never owned a dog, and he was asked what would he recommend feeding-wise if he were to get one? Would he feed raw or would he feed dry? Mm -hmm. And without any other knowledge of dog nutrition other than the study that they'd been involved with, he said, hands down, how could he not feed raw? Yeah. Based on the homocysteine levels. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the the classic quote, right? What you 
once you know better, you've got to do better. That's right. And, you know, I feel a bit guilty after a lifetime of feeding my dogs a way that I don't think was the best for their health Mm -hmm. now. So if we look at kibble or dry food, some of the pros, which are pretty good ones, it can be cheaper than Mm -hmm. raw food. It's certainly easy. It's highly convenient to scoop it out, feed, you're done. And if you buy a good quality brand, all the hard work of determining, you know, a nutritionally complete diet has been done for you. Mm -hmm. And it stores easy too. That's right. There's so many conveniences around it, which is why people reach for it so readily. It stores, it sits there. Um, You can chuck it in a container and throw it in your cupboard. You can just leave it in the bag and scoop it out with a cup. You can Um, buy a year of it. Yeah, pretty much. Which is scary. Um, (laughs) Yeah, just being able to do that alone sort of is an indicator, right? Mm. But then if we look at some of the downsides of kibble, I mean, it's designed to keep dogs alive because it contains the minimum standards of critical nutrients that your dog needs, but it doesn't give your dog optimal health. So while your dog will survive, and I guess this is a bit tricky to say because I don't know all of the premium brands and what they offer, Mm -hmm. but with a lot of dry foods too, there's been a lot of instances of undeclared ingredients, unacceptable levels of bacteria, you know, your salmonellas and your E. coli's. Uh, mycotoxins, which are like a fungus from grains, drug residues, heavy metals, and then not to mention you've got all your artificial flavorings and additives and colors to make the food more palatable and, you know, to last longer. So you say drug residues, would that just be from the manufacturer? So they were like, wherever they were making it, their equipment was used to make some sort of drug and then now it's making dog food and they just haven't cleaned it properly? Is that how that would happen? It's actually really... A little bit controversial because some of the residues that have been found have been euthanasia drugs. Shit. What's been suggested is that, you know, all that meat meal yeah. that's in maybe some of the less quality mm-hmm. brands, you know, it's just the carcasses of dead animals that have potentially been euthanized or treated <laughs> with antibiotics or hormones. So there's evidence to back that up? Yep. So it's all scientifically documented? I don't have the studies on me to tell you what they are, but yeah, we can... Um, but we could post a link to that. Absolutely. That's pretty scary. That, I had yeah. no idea about that. That's a bit fucked up. That mm. is, that certainly is. That sort of stuff is, when you're talking about things being outrageous, those th- sort of things are. And I think there was one, like one of the worst instances and was something that happened from a batch of dog food that came out of China and hundreds, if not thousands of dogs got sick or died from the contamination of the dog food. Wow. Wh- which country? Was it worldwide or...? Not sure. Okay. Yeah. But look, even if the dog food, you know, is premium and it's not contaminated, it's very low in moisture content, which increases the risk of kidney stones due to higher oxalate and calcium excretion rates mm-hmm. in the urine, very high in carbohydrates for the most part. High carbohydrate diets in dogs, like in humans, it's associated with obesity, with insulin resistance, diabetes, urinary stones again, you know, and a whole range of Lethargy. other health problems. Lethargy for sure, right? It absolutely is. Yep. So one way to quieten your dog down, if you've got a hyper dog. (laughs) Put him in a carb coma. Yep. Um, And even like the Nutritional Research Council, which is the government agency that writes the nutritional guidelines for feeding dogs, states that dogs have no nutritional need for carbohydrates. But pet foods, like commercial dry food companies use them because it's more economical. It's filler. And, you know, there are vet physiology books that say dogs really don't need more than three to five percent carbs in their diet because any more impacts on their, you know, detoxification processes. You've got anti-nutritional factors in dry foods that are high in grains, you know, like your phytates that can bind to minerals and set up deficiencies. Mm -hmm. And that homocysteine study we discussed, you know, even that demonstrated that feeding dry foods actually harder on the dog's body 
in the sense that the dog's body had to work more aggressively to process the food. Yeah. So, you know, they couldn't explain why in the study, but the outcome was it was more metabolically stressful for the dog to be fed a dry food diet Mm -hmm. than a raw food diet. You know, and from a naturopathic perspective, you know, at the end of the day, to me, kibble, it's a dead food. You know, when your pet's organs have to work overtime to digest and absorb something that they're not designed to eat, it just inhibits the body's capacity, you know, your dog's body's capacity to achieve that optimal wellness. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of maybe a little bit of an unbalanced view of dry food, yeah. kibble. But looking at raw food, so the pros of raw food is that it's biologically appropriate. So, you know, all animal species eat their food raw in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and the entire digestive tract of the dog is designed to eat and digest raw meat. So, you know, they've got very low gastric acid levels between 1.5 and 2.5, which is more acidic than the human guts. And that's to break down, you know, bone and meat, um, muscle meat. They have a really high bile production, you know, again, antipathogenic actions. So, and the research that has been done has consistently shown that, you know, raw foods have high nutrient digestibility. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, why do we think that dogs would do better on a cooked food or a highly processed food diet if biologically they're designed to eat raw food? Yeah. You know, and there's also evidence that, as Glenn mentioned earlier, you know, there's improved dental health in animals fed raw meaty bones. Some of the commercial raw food diets are frozen, which means, you know, you don't get those extra additives and preservatives. And people who are making the diets themselves can tailor it to their dog's needs. So if their dog's got a particular allergy they can work around that. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting conversation on the Balance Symposium the other day. Did you see that where people were no. blowing up at each other about the raw food handling? and? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did say that, yeah. Yeah, so I actually found that quite interesting and somewhat intriguing that certain people were suggesting that handling raw food can have serious consequences for your dog because it's you know, you can get salmonella and all yeah. sorts of E. coli, et cetera, et cetera, whereas... I mean, people have been handling raw meat for years. I mean, yeah. If you're lacking any sort of sensibility in managing food in any way, of course you're going to give your dogs a high risk of exposure to salmonella or E. coli. You'd do it to yourself. Yeah. That's a funny one because at the same time, in I'm in these stupid carnivore groups now, right, on Facebook. So the same day there were people talking about, you know, how do you have lunch on the go in these carnivore groups and heaps of people just eat raw beef. Like people are eating just wow. raw beef, and in the same day, there's pets saying, "Oh, you can't even feed your pet raw because you will ha- inevitably handle the raw meat." And then I scroll down my feed, and the next thing is a guy like, "Here I am." He was in like a well, whole food so much store. for the sushi industry, yeah, huh? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> this guy's in a whole food store, just literally eating mints, eating yep. ground beef raw. Um, no and, steak tartare, no sushi. Yeah, no. well, what do they call it in Belgium? It's a um, it's a pretty common meal, a fillet something, where it's a, it's like a basically a steak. Uh, sorry, a hamburger patty uncooked with served with a raw egg on top of it. Yeah, the steak fillet, min, fillet mignon. Oh, steak tartare. Yeah, steak, yeah. yeah, yeah, steak yeah. tartare. I accidentally ordered that at the Belgian beer cafe once. I was like, you forgot to cook my food. And they were like, no, no, you're an idiot. Well, I mean, the Dutch have been eating like they call it roll mops or something like that, which is like a pickled fish. I mean, it's pickled, but mm. it's still raw fish mm. that they just, uh, you know, they. Soak it in vinegar or a pickled situation. Um, it's particularly disgusting, that, isn't it? Like you open it and it's like a apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, those concerns are valid, but, I mean, common sense applies. You know, you you apply 
good hygiene practices whenever you're handling raw meat as you would for humans, yeah. as you would for, you know, if it's dog food. You know, raw diets do contain salmonella and campylobacter and E. coli and clostridium and, you know, a whole raft of bacteria that are pathogenic to dogs and humans. Now, dogs physiologically can handle that higher level of... They'll do better than us. ...bacteria. And, you know, you do need to take that into consideration. So generally those pathogens only pose a serious human risk to those that are immunocompromised, you know, very young children or the elderly. Mm -hmm. So if you have those groups in your home, you do need to think twice about whether raw food feeding is the most appropriate thing to do in that situation. But then it would just come down to like hygiene as well, right? Like how you're storing that raw meat and the, the getting of it from your fridge to your dog and your cleaning. I mean, that thing that was on Facebook about the, you know, that really was more of a like, hey, that could happen to anyone eating any any meat if you store it poorly and don't cook it properly or... or can happen to cook food. Yeah, exactly, right? You know, I mean, cook food's not... Um, cleaning your utensils and people... The classic one is people that cut chicken and then on a chopping board and then put the cooked chicken back onto the, the same yeah. chopping well, board. Well, Narelle used a classic example before about all that dry food that came over with bacteria in it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, just because you've got cooked food, you're at higher risk in raw foods for spoiling. However even preserved foods, have a limited shelf life. Yeah. But on that too, dogs do actually shed bacteria in their stools. So there's been a lot of studies done and they're very mixed in their results as to whether, you know, because people like to say that dogs fed a raw food diet shed higher levels of, say, salmonella in their feces Mm -hmm. than kibble-fed dogs. But the studies go both ways in their results. So they say, I can't say whether this is accurate or not, but they say that, the bacteria that the dogs shed in their stools can be transferred to carpets and furniture as they move around the house. Okay. So I guess that's where the risk comes in for the immunocompromised. And yeah, sure. I mean, we can all yeah. accept that as possible. If yeah. You, and that's just a hygiene issue as well, right? If you it is keep everything clean, keep your... A little bit harder clean. to control though because um, it's not something you can see. So the rule of thumb is don't step in dog shit and bring it inside the house. <laughs> and if, you, <laughs> if your dog's scraping his bum on the carpet... <laughs> wipe it up. Do something about it. That's yeah. right. And you need to take into consideration if, you know, if you're feeding raw, some of the other drawbacks might be feeding bones can cause choking, intestinal blockages, perforations, chipped teeth. And all about that. You do. Although it wasn't feeding raw, I was feeding them steel pipe. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not recommended. And people who feed raw vegetables, you know, they're poorly digested by right, dogs okay. as well. Well, so that that's a good point for us to move on to. So the point you're bringing up definitely is that raw is better when done properly mm-hmm. and if it's achievable for you. So I admit uh, I haven't really fed raw. Our dogs as kids ate sort of a kibble base and plenty of like table scraps, leftovers. And we had Border Collies that lived to be 16, 17. They were healthy dogs. And my dogs, when, when I first got my first Malia, I did a little bit of research into raw feeding and tried it. And first of all, I found that I didn't have the time because I was still in the army and wasn't mm. home that much. And I just didn't have the... I found that I was like putting more thought into this dog's diet than my own and I didn't really know what I was doing and I wasn't confident that I was hitting all the the things, as you said, getting all those um, nutrients and vitamins. So I went back to kibble and then in the last, oh, and sorry, I also used to use, you know, Devon and like chicken loaf for training treats and I've recommended heaps of people do that and I still sort of do it, but even though it's probably not that great for a dog either, mm. but Lately, I am transitioning to – I'm in a, a transitional period of going to a semi-raw sort of diet. Isn't it amazing 
that people themselves can be in one camp or another where they can be so fastidious about the preparation of their dog food and yet they'll go out and smash a chocolate bar and drink alcohol and go yeah. crazy and, and just totally neglect their own well-being. Yeah. Or they can be vice versa where, well, I suppose there's three, but the second camp will conveniently feed their dog out of a bag of food, throw it on there, and yet they'll look at their own nutrition, they'll exercise readily, and I guess the third camp find that balance. That's, well, I had that. That's pretty much something that's structured throughout life. Well, I had a talk um, with a client just the other day who is, you know, not a professional bodybuilder, but he's massive and jacked, and he called me and he was buying. He was, he's, a, he's just the kind of guy that just calls and asks stupid questions, but he's funny to talk to, so you always accept the call. And did, he, the, did he ring you up and say, do you know that there's a guy who did an experiment with 900 cats? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he calls me and he's at the he's at the – the pet store and he's like, hey, bro, uh, what kind of uh, nutritional profile should we be looking at for this dog? And he starts reading off the contents off of the things. And I said, man, I don't know. Like, how am I meant to know that? And he's very into his own health. He's jacked, like I say. And I was like, what, what's your carb profile? And he's like, oh, I do this. And I said, well, I do the opposite. So me and you, uh, I'm, not, I'm not eating any, right? So me and you are on a totally different scheme. We're both reasonably healthy. So I don't have the answer for you on that. So that's where I sort of am going to like, what does a good raw feeding plan look like? Because I don't know what that is and I'm too scared to go, well, I'm not sure I have the capacity to go fully raw. So at the moment, my dogs are on sort of a mix, like a kibble base. And I feed a super high quality kibble that I have for years and I've never, I've seen performance increases on that. And my markers of performance really are just, uh, does the dog look good? Does the dog have good energy? Are his stools well formed? Mm. And, And that's really all as a, observation of the dog is all I can go by. And this particular kid, I won't bother naming it. I will, I would, except it's not commercially available. So people can't buy it anyway. So there's no point in, in, in naming it, but it's a very high quality kibble and my dogs have always done well on it. And I have, I'm yet to find a dog that doesn't do well on it, but I still want to introduce more raw, particularly like with Remy at the moment, I want him I consider him like an elite athlete and I'm trying to maximize Mm. his, his diet and I'm trying to do that. So I've introduced eggs and meat and I've always given a little bit of fish as well, like canned sardines with the whole oil and everything straight in and like some greens and that it might be just be a little, like a handful of spinach every now and again or something like that. But I know I don't know enough about it. And to be honest, I don't have the time or energy or inclination to become an expert. So I have that kibble base of that really high quality kibble that I know works well so that I feel like I can fall back on that. And that's perfectly fine. And, you know, it is about observing our dogs and paying attention to their health because, you know, like humans, dogs are very individual and unique in their requirements and how they respond to diet and different Mm -hmm. food choices. So if your dogs are are doing well, great. They're probably very strong genetically Mm -hmm. and that's working for them. So dogs that are are more susceptible to, you know, skin conditions and allergies, that's where I'd say for sure that, that owner needs to be considering doing something different other than a 100% dry food diet. Sure. But that's, you know, so maybe we can talk about, you know, where people are most likely to make mistakes when they are preparing food for their dogs. So, you know, one of the main things that often happens is that people don't feed enough protein. So a dog's diet, you know, which comes back to the kibble, where there is enough good Mm -hmm. quality bioavailable protein in that, particularly for high-level working dogs, You know, animal protein sources such as, you know, your muscle meat, organs, eggs, dairy, you know, should ideally make up 75% of your dog's diet, Right. you know, minimum 50%. And a lot of people follow what's called the 80-10-10 rule, which stands for 80% meat, 
10% bone and 10% organ meat. But even feeding 80-10-10, it's a really good start, but it's still unbalanced. And over time, you're still going to get micronutrient deficiencies. So in the wild, dogs are eating the whole prey, the bones, the internal organs, the blood, the brain, the glands, hair, skin, teeth, tongue. And it's all those extra organs and gut contents that's covering those micronutrient Mm-hmm. So that nose to tail leading. Basically, I really love the idea of feeding the 75%, you know, meat, organ, bone, but that other 25%, and this is where it, you see a lot of differences in opinion online, fruits and veggies. Right. I think it's really important. Again, it may just come back to my naturopathic and nutritional sort of perspective on diet, but to feed those living foods, but in a way that the dog can handle it. So if I do feed fruits and vegetables, I don't really give fruits, but vegetables, I make sure that they're lightly cooked and they're macerated. So the dog's digestive system, which can handle really small amounts of plant material okay, mm-hmm. can can take that in. So what's an example of some of the vegetables that you would feed? Name a few. Uh, broccoli, zucchini, cauliflower, kale, spinach. Green leafy vegetables. Yeah, a lot of the lower starch. Mm. Where's carrot fit on that? Look, you could probably feed, well, you can feed carrot. Again, it's a higher carbohydrate sure. vegetable, so I'd be doing very small amounts infrequently mm-hmm. if you're going to feed something like carrot. But what you were saying that you've tried to incorporate into your dog's diet, the sardines are great, occasional eggs, the occasional handfuls of vegetables. I mean, that's great to, even to add to a kibble-based diet just to get that extra life into the food and, yeah. you know, the phytonutrients and the antioxidants and the enzymes and the prebiotics. And it's just supporting the dog in a much better way. So something you said to me before, and I realised that I'd never even occurred to me, uh, and I probably have done it to myself, especially over the last month, is developing a, an allergy from a single source of protein. So that's something, can you expand on that? Sure. So I see it regularly with my clients. And from what I've read, dogs are susceptible to the same situation. So when you eat a single protein, you know, over and over, day in, day out, it actually, protein molecules can actually trigger an immune response. And it's usually the foods we crave the most that are the problem. And so when you feed the same proteins over and over again, day in and day out, they can trigger an immune response, which can lead to various manifestations of different allergies, whether it's respiratory or skin. Right. So really, if you're going to feed raw and you identify like, okay, I'm going to feed, this is the meal I'm going to make for my dog all day, every day, this is it, that could become problematic as well, right? Absolutely. And it's one of the top three mistakes that people make when they're feeding their dogs a home prepared meal is that they get stuck in that rut of the same blend of foods because it's easy. You know, that's what they've decided. And potentially maybe that's part of the problem with the kibble that you were feeding anyway, because like that could be one of the the health issues. We don't really know that for sure, right? That it could be the kibble is the same thing every time and that could be, you know, increasing the, what's it called again? The... um, the homocysteine. Homocysteine. Yes, very good. So that could be a potential source for that as well, right? In that if you're just feeding the same kibble over and over. So if you're feeding raw, feed a variety of protein types and vegetable types, right? Variety is key. So whatever diet you're feeding, whether it's dry, whether it's raw, whether it's a mixture, the more variety you can get into your dog's diet, the better they'll be long-term because it's actually quite difficult for pet owners to come up with balanced recipes or to create meals that are nutritionally balanced over time. Mm -hmm. And there was actually a study done by uh, UC Davis and they analysed 200 recipes for dogs 
And they were using sources like veterinary textbooks, pet care books, and websites like popular dog feeding websites. And their study of the 200 recipes revealed that only nine met the minimum standards wow. established for adult dogs by the Association of American Feed Control Officials. And so 95% of those recipes lacked at least one vital nutrient that dogs need and 85 had multiple nutrient deficiencies. Right. And I've, you know, I've crunched the numbers myself. I've got nutrition software that I use to analyse my patients' diets mm-hmm. with and I've put in some popular like raw dog food diets from the internet and that's where I've gone, oh, my goodness, you really need to know what you're doing to get this right. Right. To not do oh, We've dog- had this discussion many times before where I'll flick Narelle a, a link to a page where I've seen somebody talking about raw food diets and I'll say, what do you think of this? And she'll come back to me and go, after a couple of days and she's plugged it into her system, she'll come back and say, this is either excessively high in vitamin A or vitamin D and they haven't taken into consideration this and the long-term effect of it is that. So, yeah, it's quite incredible what comes back at, like, for prolonged feeding at mm. those levels, the damage that we're actually doing unbeknownst to us. So what's an example of some of the things that could be missing when people go on, a, like, a basic raw feed diet? One of the main nutrients that people need to be aware of and get right is calcium. A lot of homemade diets lack the correct calcium and phosphorus balance because we get a lot of phosphorus in the foods we eat. Meat contains phosphorus but it's only the bone that contains the calcium right. in levels that dogs need. So if you're not feeding raw bones to your dog and you're not feeding kibble, you need to supplement calcium. And calcium is not just about bone health. It's fundamental to nerve health, blood coagulation, muscle contraction, cell signaling. There's so many processes in the body that require the right level of calcium. And if you don't get that right, you know, your dog's going to be really messed up really quickly. Well, perhaps not really quickly, but... In due course. In due course. So that's probably one of the key ones, calcium, if you're not feeding bone. But it's easy these days to get a, you can either grind up egg, like dried up eggshell or buy a powdered calcium mm-hmm. carbonate or citrate product. Is um, there a preferred one in that calcium? Carbonate or citrate yep. would be probably best for bioavailability mm-hmm. for the dog. So in eggshell as well, though, you say? Because mm. I feed raw eggs like shell and all, just throw the whole thing in. Fine. Perfect. Yeah. It's just if people are using a lot of eggs and they can dry them in, you know, overnight or in the oven and then mm-hmm. just grind them up. It's just an easy way to yeah, yeah. some dogs to... So get your mortar and pestle out and start grinding eggshells. That's a good Old job for you. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just found a task. Uh, grinding eggs up. Yeah. Mm. You're on that straight after the podcast. Great. Um, the other one, the other nutrient that's fundamental and, you know, at high risk of deficiency is omega-3 fatty acids. So dogs can't produce omega-3 or omega-6 fatty acids, which is why they're called essential fatty acids. And they're critical for, you know, cell membranes, for skin, coat, immune health, steroid hormone production, brain development. The the list goes on. What would be a source of those? As I mentioned, you've got the omega-3 and the omega-6. And it's the ratio between those two fatty acids that's critical. So a lot of food is very high in omega-6 fatty acids. That's in human diets and in dogs' diets. So your omega-6 fatty acids are mainly from all your vegetable oils, you know, your safflower, sunflower, corn, sesame oil, peanut oil. Mm -hmm. And in excess, that's very pro-inflammatory in the body. Okay. Your omega-3s are mainly from your fatty fish. So your sardines, salmon, your mackerel, things like that. What about flaxseed? Flaxseed, yes. So your omega-3s have really potent anti-inflammatory action and flaxseeds are a source of omega-3s, but it's it's at the beginning of that pathway 
fatty acid pathway in the body. So to try and explain it, you start with flax seeds contain a compound called alpha-linolenic acid. Humans can then convert that poorly into what's called EPA, eicosapentaenoic acid, which then goes on to be converted to DHA, docosahexaenoic acid. So it's the EPA and the DHA that our body actually uses for whatever physiological function. Dogs after weaning have been shown to not be able to convert ALA, that alpha-linolenic acid, into EPA and DHA, which is what the cells need. So it's not in there. It's there, but they can't use it. That's right. So flaxseed can have, if you're feeding flaxseed meal, that can have other benefits for fibre and hormonal balancing and the like. But as a source of omega-3, not great for dogs. Mm -hmm. So you're better off giving your dogs in that case a fish oil or a krill oil or just feed sardines or salmon. Well, Mm -hmm. maybe not salmon. Um, (laughs) It's a bit fancy for dogs. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it's. I'm surprised that flaxseed is still promoted so heavily for dogs as a source of omega-3. Right. Because so it, it is there, but it's not bioavailable to a dog. He can't use it. Exactly. And even in humans, we can, it is avail- like bioavailable, but you need a lot of it to get the levels of EPA and DHA that your body might need. Mm-hmm. Yep. That, that's an interesting topic, the whole thing on bioavailability in that a lot of people don't understand that. And I'm only sort of wrapping my head around it now in that, you know, you might say this meat has this level of protein and these beans have this level of protein, but I can't access that protein in the beans the same ease that I can access it in the in the meat, right? That's, that's yep. That's basically the, the gist of it. Yep. So proteins are rated on their bioavailability mm-hmm. and yeah, you have proteins that are higher and proteins that are lower. So you plant proteins are lower in, in their body the body's ability to utilize. Yeah. So even though yep. they're there, I can't access it and use it properly. Not as efficiently. Yeah, but not yep. as efficiently there you go. And even things like chicken muscle meat is very high in omega six. So people who feed a single source of protein, you know, and they might just be feeding lots of chunks of chicken muscle meat, you know, again, nutritionally deficient in a lot of micronutrients and vitamins and minerals, but also a completely inappropriate ratio of, of fatty acids in that for the dog's optimal health. Right. Yep. So it's so much to wrap your head around and you can understand exactly why people really need to be careful when they're going to feed raw because it's not as simple as like, yes... It, it is better than kibble. If you're feeding just standard kibble or feeding really well thought out and balanced raw, raw is going to be way better. But the kibble is usually balanced if you're getting a good one. And if you're feeding raw and not thinking about it too much and just sort of throwing it together haphazardly and not getting all the balances, you could actually be doing your dog a disservice. Is that is that a reasonable summary or how badly have I butchered? No, that's absolutely the case. So even though naturopathically I'm more towards the raw food diet as a better diet for our dogs, if you're not going to do it right, feed kibble. Yeah. And I feel like it's just something we need to point out as well because sometimes I feel, you know, I'm not a big raw feeder. I'm trying to get better at it. But it, raw feeders can be a real tribe and they can look down the, their but noses. But isn't everybody in, in this industry or, or many other industries is rather than, again, it, it comes back to we talk about the importance of being balanced and yet there are some people who are all or nothing yeah. in their approach to anything. It's either you're you're with me or you're not. Yeah, and it, the raw feeding can sometimes, and look, I, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but I just, and no one even that I, I know, but you can get a feel like you're less than if you're not feeding raw. And the reality is maybe you don't have time, you don't have the education, you don't have the money, whatever it could be. And maybe you're fucking up your dog by feeding yeah, a exactly. raw food diet that you haven't put... Uh, adequate research into exactly. So if you're listening, don't be thinking because I'm not a raw feeder exclusively. So don't be thinking, oh, 
I'm fucking up my dog or, you know, I'm less than because I'm not feeding raw because this dog I'm feeding now is probably the first one that I'm even trying to do it properly and I'm, I know I'm butchering that. So it's, for me, I, like my dogs work for their food. So it's, it's not convenient to feed raw. I, I'm finding ways to do that and I'm going through like I'm blending all the food and trying to freeze it and, you know, it's a shit fight. Jeez, how did all these farmers and all these people back in the 70s and so forth cope with life without all these <laughs> yeah. magnificent foods to keep their dogs exactly fed well on. well the funny thing about that is you know like that's working dogs eat nose to tail right they'll well, get they'll have a a roux like no I, I see it yeah i see it you know there's actually a very good book by dr ian billinghurst called give your dog a bone which he's subsequently written other books since that time but that book came out about 25 years ago mm-hmm. and um, Billinghurst is actually considered one of the grandfathers of modern day raw feeding where he talks predominantly about the bath diet, bones and raw food. In that book, he highlights and always has been, he's a vet, so he advocates the the raw feeding program and he says to us that we've done ourselves an incredible disservice by putting our dogs onto processed foods. Mm-hmm. He's saying, and it's his suggestions, that allegedly by doing this, we're shortening the dog's lives considerably. So if you haven't read those books, uh, if you haven't looked into Billinghurst study, and even um, people like uh, Rodney Habib, who's been doing a lot of work and research on that, you can get online and have a look at some of his YouTube clips as well, because they're fascinating. And he's constantly researching better and more efficient ways. He's globetrotting, looking for ultimately the best way to feed your dog or cat on. Mm. But again, I just want to point out what we're talking about here is to achieve optimal Mm. health. And show me a person of optimal health. You know what I mean? Like, so who is putting enough thought and effort into their own diet to really say, I am as optimally healthy. I am as, I am the best version of myself that I can be. So don't feel bad if your dog is not on this, but just know if it's not, maybe when you have time, effort, energy, money to achieve it, you could potentially do things a little bit different. Or you do the best you can and incorporate, like my dogs aren't hundred percent raw fed because I'm not confident yet that I, even I can get it 100% right and not mess up my dogs so long term. Let's not gloss over that, right? So you are a naturopath, nutritionist. We've, we've given your pedigree on what you know about food. Mm. You've got software that you can plug in what the food is and it will give you the micronutrient breakdown. That's it. You're the person we're talking to about this info and even you say it's not simple to do and you're not at the point yet where you're you're satisfied that you'll achieve optimal health through nothing but raw feed. That's right. And for me, it comes down to time. I'm just really time poor. Mm-hmm. And if... Like everyone is, right? And because I can't put the time into it, you know, there are things that I still haven't got my head around on how to achieve those optimal levels of nutrients and, and the balance between them all. So our dogs at the moment are on 50% premium kibble and 50 Which is the same one I feed. Okay. And 50% of the pre-made commercial buff patties. Which is to support why convenience is king and yep. why people will pay for something pre-packaged that they don't have to think a lot about. Yeah. And this is where the raw feeding market is actually starting to shift, where people are actually starting to pre-package raw feeding. Mm-hmm. And Billinghurst, I believe his buff diet is one of them. There's several patties that contain the bones, raw food and vegetation that dogs require. Like they've got all the prebiotics and probiotics that are all mixed into the, I don't know if it's exactly balanced the way it should be, but there are a lot of variations. There's fish, there's chickens, there's beef, there's roux, there's deer, there's all sorts of things that are crocodile. I've seen crocodile, you know, even people who are. Wait, you're blowing out the food chain. 
crocodiles don't get eaten by dogs. That's not allowed. Well, apparently that's one of the things that kills them now that I've just found out rather than just living forever. Yeah, that's right. Um, um, one of the biggest problems I find food. with the raw food feeding is freezer space. Yeah. Yep. Nightmare. And, and especially if you're into eating really well as yourself, there's a lot of time and prep in eating well. And if you're doing it for yourself and for your dog, it's a lot of work. Yeah, and it's not if you're making your own raw meals for your dog, you're going to do it in batches. Yeah. You're not going to do that on a daily basis. And so the second hurdle is space. Yeah. Um, Let's get real about this. If raw feeding and eating completely balanced nutritional diets was such a good thing, um, supermarkets would almost lose half their business overnight because we'd go back to putting gardens in our backyard raising our own cattle and sheep and et cetera, et cetera, and making sure that they were all fed on organic produce as well. Yeah, it's pra- there's a practicality on it. Well, right? like I said, convenience is king. Yeah, and that's just not how people are living these days. Hmm. There is a question I want to ask you, and we were talking about this the other day, is can dogs be totally vegan? Because it's a question I see people asking, and you may not know a lot of information on that, but it's one thing that I keep seeing coming up in these online arguments is that there is evidence to support that a dog can be vegan. Okay, so when you ask that question, can dogs be vegan, every part of me wants to scream out, no, dogs can't be vegan. But I looked into it and technically, yes, dogs can actually survive, not thrive, survive on a plant-based diet. But it, it needs to be done so, so carefully and you know, there's so much that can go wrong. And just because you can feed a dog a plant-based diet doesn't mean and it doesn't die. You know, it doesn't make them omnivores. Yeah. You know, there's going to be plenty of cross-feeding vegans that are going to hate us now. Oh, <laughs> uh, look, you know, I can only give my opinion. Taxonomically, you know, dogs are in the order carnivora, family canidae, genus canis. And if we consider, again, the physiology of the dog, you know, they've got the teeth, the jaws, the digestion and the palate of a carnivore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they've got the the pointed molars, which are designed to rip and shred and tear flesh off bone. Their jaws don't allow that lateral side-to-side movement that... Like grazing animals Yeah, that grazing animals need to grind and macerate that plant fibre down. Dogs have a very short digestive tract, so species that are designed to eat a higher plant-based content have a longer intestinal tract to deal with that fermentation that needs to happen. They've actually got like a secondary stomach, haven't they, or something like that where... Not dogs. Not, no, no, no. Cows and... Cows and yep. grazing animals. So uh, the, they can they can have a second stage for that fermentation process of the... That's right, because it takes a lot to break down yep. plant material. You know, their stomachs are highly acidic to deal with the bone and, and the meat. They actually don't produce salivary amylase. So humans and a lot of other species produce amylase in the mouth, and that's an enzyme that's designed to break down starches and carbohydrates. So that's the first point of digestion in our bodies and dogs don't have that. They do produce small amounts from their pancreas, which is why they can handle small amounts of plant material, but not huge volumes. They also don't produce cellulose, which is another enzyme required to break down plant material. So when a dog's fed a very high plant-based diet, it puts a lot of stress on the pancreas to upregulate that amylase production to the detriment of lipase and proteases which are enzymes to break down fat and proteins. So there's a lot of big words, but it boils down to that it is possible if done very, very carefully and by a highly educated person, it is possible to keep a dog alive on a vegan diet. But the, the reality is, and a point that we're skipping past, and I often see it 
grafted over in in conversations online too is that if your dog was re-released back into the wild like let's say for example humanity died off and all dogs were re-released back into the wild would your dog choose a vegan diet no studies have actually been done on that where they've presented dogs and cats with three diet options and allowed the animals to choose and (laughs) every dog i've ever owned would choose all three (laughs) and the cats chose a high protein high fat meal with about between 2 to 12% carbs, and dogs naturally chose a high-fat, moderate-protein diet with 3 to 7% carbs. I mean, dogs, they're facultative carnivores. Cats are obligate carnivores. Cats absolutely fundamentally need meat to survive, whereas dogs, they do best on a carnivorous diet, but they can survive on a non-carnivorous diet. They prefer not to, but if they're pushed or forced, they will. It's possible. It's possible. Unfortunately... You know, many people assume that since dogs aren't strict carnivores like cats are, that they can easily transition to a vegetarian or even a vegan diet. But also, unfortunately, is that dogs can suffer a great deal of nutritional abuse and survive. Yeah. But their bodies, you know, long term will suffer the consequences. And just because a dog can withstand nutritional abuse, it doesn't make it okay Mm -hmm. to feed them a diet that's inappropriate for their species. Mm. I've actually never really had the vegan argument until just the last weekend. I was at a friend's place and he, uh, I was still doing the 100% meat and he just kind of smiled and nodded and then when his sister turned up, oh, I didn't know he was a vegan, he says, hey, Pat, tell Sophie about um, this diet you've got going on. And so that was an, an ordeal, but as I... Hang on, hang on. Did she not tell you she was a vegan when she met you? <laughs> she Actually, when she came through the door, they were talking about it. Did she, like, did she have a T-shirt? So? No. But anyway, th- what it really boiled <laughs> down to was, like, as I pointed out to her, I've got nothing against ethical vegans. But, Neither have I. Um, and that, like, power to you, but I don't share those ethics. Mm. And But you, there is, it's just not true that it's any healthier. You can be healthier. There's, like, I accept that, but it's no more healthy. Yeah, it's interesting, um, Dr. Karen Becker, who you mentioned earlier, she's actually a vegetarian herself. From what I've read, she gets a lot of calls from clients because they hear she's a vegetarian veterinarian and they think that she'll be supportive of their position to feed their dogs or cats, you know, a vegetarian or vegan diet. And she's completely the opposite. So she doesn't think it's appropriate at all. And she goes on to say that she'll hear clients say, you know, well, I've been feeding my dog as a vegan for years and she appears to be doing great. And then a few years down the road, Dr. Becker's there treating those animals for preventable degenerative diseases such as type 2 diabetes from too many carbohydrates, heart failure from a lack of bioavailable amino acids Mm -hmm. and serious musculoskeletal problems from trace mineral nutritional deficiencies. So, and that's why variety is so important. In the short term, people think they're getting away with feeding a certain diet, but it's those long-term consequences that, you know, we need to be considering from day one. Mm. And as you say, dogs suffer through so much. It's just because your dog appears okay on it doesn't mean that they really are, right? Well, they can't tell you. Yeah. There's no way that they can actually explain to you. And getting back to that point before, I was having a joke about in regards to vegans <laughs> and so forth. I mean, look, to be honest, Narelle and I have reduced our the amount of meat we eat. There's times where we just eat vegetarian or vegan-based diets ourselves for a period of time. I'm talking one or two days here and there because I do like meat. You know, I'm not going to pussyfoot around it. I actually do enjoy the taste of meat and I won't give it up. We're talking Just, to the converter with Pat sitting yeah. them. Yeah. 31 yeah. days, nothing but steaks. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm all for it. But, I, I mean, look, I know people who choose a vegan lifestyle or vegetarian lifestyle and they're telling me they feel great on it and they're doing well. 
power to you, as you yeah, said it's before. Totally possible. But I don't believe I'm pushing it on your dogs. Yeah. I think that that is a vastly idiotic thing to do. I haven't known anybody who's successfully done it and had their dog thrive. I'm sure there's, after this podcast, there'll be people that want to argue that point. And if you do have a point that you can put forward and support it, I'd be happy to hear it. I guess it comes, it's like humans, you know, as a naturopath and nutritionist, I see a lot of vegans and vegetarians in my clinic with nutritional deficiencies because they're not doing the diet well. Mm-hmm. So if, look, I still think a vegan diet is probably not the best option for a dog, but if someone was prepared to do it well and to supplement things like your omega-3s, um, your calcium, your iron, your phosphorus, your vitamin D even, dogs can't produce adequate vitamin D themselves from the sun. If someone's prepared to do that, I think they're giving their dog a, a much better chance. Yeah. Well, I think, as I say, most vegans are so ethically, and then you have to confront the fact that you're for the proper and best treatment of animals and Mm. are you providing that to your dog by making it be a vegan and if you can really settle that with yourself there's you're never going to change their mind anyway so there's no point in arguing it Mm. and the way i see it if you're a committed vegetarian or vegan and you simply can't stand the sight of meat or even the thought of meat choose a companion animal that's in get a a rabbit in line with that um yeah, there's plenty of pets that you could choose that don't horses need meat. Yeah, horses are vegetarian. Hmm. May not be the most practical. <laughs> My sister has that tiny horse. Have you you've seen that? My sister's got a horse that weighs like forty five kilos or something. It's this ridiculous, horrible little creature that. Um, <laughs> uh, what's its real name? Is a like a miniature Shetland pony. I mean, it's cute, but it it's just so bizarre to look at. You can literally pick it up. Yep. Um, such a, so you could keep that in your house. Why not? <laughs> hmm. All right. Well, there's probably more that we could talk about, but I think we, we've probably got enough to swing around in people's brains about raw feeding. As I say, I just want to highlight that I 100% accept that it is a better thing to do, but it's not practical for everyone and it's not practical for me. So I do it a little bit and I'm confident that I'm looking after my dogs and keeping my dogs as healthy as I'm capable of and I'm at peace with that. So don't be getting angry thinking if you could do better and you're not and you're letting your dog down, we all have the restraints of reality that we have to live within. The quote that I love and talk about often on this podcast and will do into the future is Maya Angelou, her quote. You've got to sort this out because you always I'm can sure, never remember. I'm this sure is probably the third or fourth time. But the quote says, say uh, do the best you can until you know better and once you know better, do better. Yeah. You know, and that is that is the life philosophy. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, completely agree with that. Hmm. All right. Well, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, uh, if you like what you're hearing, please get onto whatever uh, subscription service you download us through and give us a rating. Doing that helps us get in contact with other people. We can't just harass and say, hey, listen to our podcast. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is on Facebook. Check out the Canine Paradigm on Facebook. You can send us a message there. And um, like always, we'll create an album and have some links and photos and references from this. We'll put up that cartoon. Might put up an example of what we feed our dogs currently like Mm. a photo or something like that and anything else when we listen back to this and we remember oh we did that oh something that i didn't bring up during this is when i was heavily researching keto there's a a keto pet website so i've never really checked it out but there is one so maybe that's worth having a look at as well Well, like i guess if dogs are fed their ancestral diet that is predominantly a keto diet so just reminded me when you said that they chose the high fat moderate protein and like Rodney Habib is very pro-keto diet for dogs. Yeah, there and, you go. And look, if listeners are interested in other topics related to nutrition or health 
in dogs, put it in the Facebook page and, you know, we might be able to extend on what we've been talking about today in a future podcast. Yeah. And also, Narelle, thank you very much for coming. If people want to get in contact with you about their personal health, their human health, what, how can they do that? I'd love to help. So naturalhealthandnutrition.com.au um, and they'll find me there and I've got a Facebook page too under the same name. Perfect. Glenn, cue the music. Uh-huh.